You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. morning so far. Wow, that, that blessing song, I had speaker right there, I had Reuben right behind me, I had my son in from out of town, I had my grandkids in the back, and I was a mess. <laughs> Just a mess. And their children, and their children, and as Kyle pointed out, and their children, and their children, and their children. So I don't know what that's supposed to mean about grandchildren, but love the ones I've got. Uh, we want to just uh, welcome you. This is my, uh, normally I would say my lovely wife, but lately I've been saying my woman of valor, Karina. And uh, we've been asked to give uh, a lesson today. Um, welcome to all of you. Thanks for braving the rain, and uh, thank you for those of you joining in online. It's great to have you here with us. Uh, we want to talk about the gospel today, but before we do, Karina's going to lead us in a prayer. Holy Father, we come before you now and we're just so grateful to be in your presence at any time on, on Sunday mornings, Sunday afternoons, Sunday evenings, any minute of any day and throughout the watches of the night, we can always come into your throne room and we can ask you for anything that we want to ask you for and we can tell you everything that's on our hearts and the good things and the bad things and the, just the things that in, in some ways are even unspeakable. Um, we can talk to you about all of that. And I'm so thankful that you're that kind of God. Thank you that you, um, you, you open wide the door of your heart and your arms to us and you let us be ourselves completely and you let us, um, and, and you have a vision for us and what we can become. Um, thank you for sending your son. We know that he is the, the center of all that, um, of, of this planet, this earth, this life we live in, and our faith. And I pray that we could always have Jesus closest to our hearts and, and at the center of our thoughts and everything we do. And, it, and it's in his most holy name that I pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs> the title of the lesson today is Remember the Gospel. I discovered several years ago that I had drifted from the gospel. Um, I wasn't doing all the crazy sinful stuff I did as a teenager before I became a Christian, but I had lost my focus on Jesus. Tim Mackey, uh, most of you know him from the Bible Project uh, podcast I listened to recently, said that Somehow the well-meaning movements of the mid-20th century narrowed the gospel to refer specifically to the culminating moment of the cross and Jesus' death for my sins so I could go to heaven. And while that's all very true and very important, it's missed the essence of the gospel message as you read in the Bible. Somewhere American Christianity has lost the fact that Jesus' 
didn't just come to die, but he came to rule. I had abandoned the call for my allegiance to him and become satisfied with what I would call transactional salvation. How many can we get? How many can we add? Isn't that the most important thing, that people go to heaven? And I had lost the idea of Jesus the King. I don't think I'm the only one. You know, in the, in the modern literature, this is referred to as a salvation culture in the church. And you'll find it not just in our church, but you'll find it throughout American Christianity and, and probably Western world Christianity. Salvation culture trains our focus away from Jesus the King and his reign, the core message of the gospel, and onto something else, getting people saved. You might ask, is that really a problem? Well, it can be. It can be. See if you might relate to any of this. If we only focus on getting people saved or trying to save ourselves, we neglect this entire second half of the Great Commission, don't we? Teach them to obey everything as I have commanded you. Salvation culture can make converts, but it struggles to make true followers. Ministry organizations built around only salvation culture will soon justify unhealthy and even ungodly practices in the name of growth. Success is measured by souls added and nothing else. In fact, our, our success as an organization becomes the metric rather than Christ-likeness. Thirdly, we get focused on our own actions, our response, and that often includes judging the responses of others. And we forget the actions of Jesus as Lord and the active work of the Holy Spirit as the Godhead's empowering agent in our lives. And I suggest that the American church is splintered more over what our response and what this transaction looks like than it, than it has over Jesus being Lord. Most of our disunity in the church comes from disagreements about how we get or how we stay saved. We don't disagree about Jesus being Lord. Instead, we get into disagreements about what that looks like and what we should do and who should decide what we do and all that kind of stuff. And I was on that treadmill. I was on that treadmill. I was in that moment where we were all about building our brand, our church, our movements, and I had lost track of the gospel. What would happen what would happen if we turned our eyes away from judging one another's response and focused again on the one calling us to follow? In contrast to salvation culture, we'd like to ask you to consider what the true gospel message is. And to do that, uh, Karina's going to read and share from Acts uh, 17, and we're going to look at Paul's gospel message and the responses that he got there. Well, you guys are really familiar with um, our first principle study, right? And the word study and those good old Bereans that we talk about all the time. I'm going to talk about those guys along with the, the Thessalonians. And in, 
Acts chapter 17 in verse 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. It says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three, sab and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He said, some, he said, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Yay. <laughs> but other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed into Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees. Funny, I didn't know that the Jews were supportive of Caesar's decrees. Anyway, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So this is a passage of contrast in response to the gospel. Right? It was Paul's custom to go to the synagogues in whatever town that he was in. And his message was the same. Um, it wasn't come to my church. It wasn't even get baptized. It was Jesus is the king. And that Jesus would die and raise from the dead. And that is the faith that they shared. That was sharing their faith. Jesus is king. Jesus is the Messiah. Um, the, their audience, some Thessalonian Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Others, as we you know, read about, were described as jealous, even resorting to violence, forming a mob, starting a riot, arresting those who had housed Paul, Silas, and his companions. It, was, it, it is definitely implied that they were not open to seeing the scriptures in a novel way from what they had been previously taught. What can be implied from their actions is that their faith in God was very small and that in contrast to the Berean Jews, they were not of noble character. There were a large number of Thessalonian God-fearing Greeks, quite a few Thessalonian prominent women, and then we go to Berea, where there were the Berean Jews 
who are described as having a noble character. And the Bible makes this contrast. It, it, it says, you know, they had a more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. There were also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men, all of who became believers. And I want to share with you a little bit about my Berean journey as a Christian. In 1984, oops, actually, March 4th, 1984, so yesterday, yes, that was the last millennia. <laughs> Thankfully, and by no other means than the grace of God, a most unlikely young woman saw the saving power of Jesus for the first time in her life and in the Bible and lived out in the lives of the campus students at the University of Colorado in Boulder, a ministry of the Boulder Church of Christ, and made the best decision of her life by grabbing onto Jesus and getting baptized into Christ. I say unlikely because there's nothing in my origin story or the decisions that I had made up to that point in time that points me to having faith or standing before you right now speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Dry bones. I met a young man in that campus ministry who became my husband. And I will tell you that um, <laughs> today is his birthday. And it's not just any old birthday, it's the 6-0 birthday. And um, I consider it, I consider my relationship with Andy to be one of the greatest blessings in my life. I don't deserve him, and I love him immensely. Um, but, you know, he was a man who exceeded anything that I could think or imagine, since I had no dreams of being married or having children. The only dream I had was wealth and things. But God had a different plan for my life. A husband, three amazing children, and now two grandchildren. A career in the ministry of the gospel, and a career as a construction manager, which I still do. I'm thankful for God. And, and, and on that day, 39 years ago, I grabbed onto his plan. It was an exciting time for me, learning new things every day about God and myself and seeing and feeling God's grace in my life as I was growing in my character and understanding of God. Other exciting times as life went on were going into the ministry, being a part of planting churches in the Rocky Mountain region, in Lincoln, Nebraska, Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> seeing the gospel spread to every nation and being part of that with the money that I gave, the time I spent serving, and visits, even visits to foreign mission fields, fasting and praying and seeing God do amazing things, and adopting our youngest son from one of those nations. Seeing our children grow in their faith and fall in love with Jesus, and recently seeing them truly wrestle with their own faith, asking hard questions and seeking the answers, and in some cases not finding them yet just like me. I'm proud of my kids, 
their character, their hard work and perseverance, and they're my heroes. Lately, I have noticed something about myself, though. When I started this journey, I would probably, would have probably fallen in the category of Greek, not prominent, <laughs> with little to no history or heritage with God or the Bible. But over the years, my category has changed to that of a Jew. I now have a history and heritage having strived to follow Jesus for two-thirds of my life. I, was not per I, was, I haven't persecuted the church, thank God. <laughs> but I saw that I was no longer a Berean. The Bible had become stale for me, uninteresting. It did not feel like there was anything new for me to learn in the Bible. I've always been a prayer but my Bible study had become non-existent at times. I felt guilty, sinful, undisciplined, worldly. Sadly, I had become stuck in my search for God for years. But I kept coming to church, good for me. Amen. <laughs> and I kept praying, again, good for me. Amen. And I kept trying. I didn't give up on God, good for me. So God in his grace heard my prayers, and again, I see his hand in my life, opening up my heart to see new things. I want to thank Jacqueline Marici for your commitment to the Bible, the Women's Ministry Council, the months of study that you led us in on the topic of the women's role in the Bible and in our churches. Thank you to the women in that council who persevered and studied and learned and discussed. I am so thankful for that experience with you and thankful that that experience kicked off a new phase in my relationship with God. That study awoke in me again the desire to seek God in the scriptures and led me to further studying and learning new things about the Bible, new perspectives of the Bible, and that has led me to some aha moments and some duh moments. <laughs> The excitement of learning new things has also come with a sober realization of things that I've believed and taught that were wrong and just not what the Bible teaches. Things that have hurt people and been a roadblock in their search for their own relationship with God. Things we are talking about today. Like the things we've replaced the gospel with the hurdles that we've placed in front of people in their search for God, replacing the gospel of Jesus with our church, placing boundaries in people's search for God that the Bible does not place there, being close-minded to learning or seeing things new or from a different perspective. I've had to ask myself if what I learned 39 years ago, 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago is all that I would ever learn about the Bible, my understanding of what the Bible says and what it does not say, my doctrine, our doctrines, how to apply the Bible to my life, and how to apply the Bible to the world around us. What would Jesus really say to us here and now? And how would he say it? 
What would he challenge in my life and in your life, in your family and in our world? This is sobering to me and exciting. This is why I was baptized 39 years ago. This is what I was seeking in my heart and could not even verbalize, but God did it. And I wanna tell you some other sobering news. That Boulder Church of Christ that I was baptized in 39 years ago is no longer a church. The building has been sold and there is no longer a congregation there. When I was attending that church, there was a Sunday AM, PM, Bible study, midweek, board of directors, policies, programs, social events, spiritual events, amazing men and women, heroes of mine in the faith, whose stated goal was to follow Jesus according to the Bible. But there is no church there. There is no congregation there. And I'm ashamed of my first thought upon hearing this. Well, that's because they didn't have the truth. Implying that I do. And I'm a fool. And I'm prideful. And I'll just close out with, where are you on your Berean journey? How do you respond to spiritual or unspiritual messages that come your way? Are you like the Thessalonian Jews or the Berean Jews? May, may God's grace be on us throughout this journey called life. And may we never, ever stop seeking. May the last day I learn something new about the Bible and about God be my last day on this earth. I told you, woman of valor, I told you. You know, that passage in Acts 17 is very insightful because you see Paul addressed actually three, three different groups of people, the church in Thessalonica, who he had to wrestle with over three Sabbaths to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. And all we know is that when he went to Berea, they were so ready and open and willing and humble of heart and eager in their character to learn something according to the scriptures, not just something new, not just the fad, but that they went back and they checked the scriptures to see if what Paul was telling them was true. And then he goes on to to, uh, Athens after that. That's when I can Jews come and they start a riot and his buddies get him out of town to keep him from getting damaged. And and he goes to Athens, and he walks around Athens in a place that doesn't have a Jewish heritage and doesn't have the scriptures, and and yet they have what all men have is a desire and a longing and a searching to find God. And to them it had been expressed in hundreds of gods, in temples all over the city, and and even even a temple to an unknown God, just to make sure they didn't miss anybody and offend any, any gods. And Paul says... He could have said a lot of things to those people, but what he tells them is that God, essentially, that God has overlooked their ignorance, but now it was time for them to repent. And he had proven that this man that he had sent was going to be the king, is the new king, through through his resurrection. And of course, when he told the Jews in Thessalonica and the Athenians that there was a new king in town, that's when they stopped listening. In America, we're not used to this idea of a king. We have a declaration of allegiance, no. 
Declaration of submission? No. Declaration, how does that go again? Declaration of independence. That's right. From what? What were we trying to get independence from? A king. Yeah, we've got a we've got an origin story that does not include a king. You know, and so we, we're not we're not fond of this idea of a king. We're not. We love Jesus being our savior. We love him taking care of us. We love him loving us. And we should. I'm not saying we should. We need that. That is our human need. That is our soul's hunger. And we need that. But Jesus coming as a king is also great news for us. Our salvation is important, but the gospel is not only about salvation. If you're hanging around here just to increase your odds of getting to go to heaven, you are missing what this is all about. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that because the kingdom of God is here now and among us. It's not just after we die. It is here. God is calling partners now. God is recruiting people to implement his reign right now, right here. And if your life is about your own life and you're still just hanging on so you can be saved, I need you to rethink that need you to think about what it means to be a citizen in his kingdom. We're called to live our gospel life together. But the gospel is not about our church. It's not about growing our church. It's not about becoming a mega church or a cool church or an emerging church or a whatever church. Church is important. I'm glad you're here. You need, you need to be here, as Karina said, good for you that you're here. <laughs> that's awesome, but that's not the gospel, right? right? And so sometimes the church disappoints us, and the church goes in a direction we don't like, and all kinds of things happen, and we can abandon our loyalty, our allegiance to the king. Pledging allegiance to the king... I don't know if you, when's the last time you've pledged allegiance to the flag? Imagine in this room, it's done. You know, schools do it, I think, still. I go to city council meetings a couple times a month. We do it there. It is awkward for me to say the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, I love this country, and I think it's, you know, as Winston Churchill said, it's a ter- democracy is a ter- terrible form of government except for everything else. And, you know, it's got its problems. But I have a hard time pledging my allegiance to the flag. Not because of the country, but because I've already pledged it somewhere else. Jesus being the king, the gospel message of Jesus' kingship is a political statement. It is a political statement. Our country is divided. Our church is divided among the prevailing political philosophies in our country. And yet, as citizens of his kingdom, we already have declared our allegiance. We know what our politics are already. Our traditions, our doctrines, our dogmas, our ways of doing things are not the gospel. The danger in our constant but unchallenged exposure to scripture 
is the danger of confirmation bias. So often we read the Bible to prove what we think we believe. Right? Don't we deserve, doesn't God deserve a more noble character than that? Let's remember the gospel. Here's a short version. I found the shortest version I could find in the Bible so we could remember the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, if you have a Bible, hard copy, scroll copy, whatever, please turn there. And you guys, here's what we're going to do today. I know you can do it. We're going to memorize this verse so you can remember the gospel, okay? There's four phrases, and they're pretty easy. For 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8. Ready? Yep. Remember Jesus Christ. Can you say that? Remember Jesus Christ. Those are geniuses. Raised from the dead. Descended from David. This is my gospel. Let's do it all together. Remember Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead. Descended from David. This is my gospel. What does that verse mean? Why would... I mean, I find, I find it fascinating just on the first word, remember. Like, it's the gospel. It's what this is all about. And Paul is writing this to his protege and another minister, telling him to remember the gospel. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that unexpected? And yet, it's real, isn't it? It's so easy, even for the ministry staff, even for the elder, to forget about the gospel in the midst of ministry. Remember. We need to remember. Paul goes, of course, if you read verse 9, you realize why it's hard sometimes, because Paul was in chains. And the discussion in that, that entire chapter is about everybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And it's hard to remember the gospel sometimes when those are the circumstances. I'm not saying it's easy, but we need to remember. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, a title of honor. Not Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ. The gospel forever couples this man Jesus to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Identifies him as the eternal king. A central point in the gospel proclamation was always about the new king in his reign. If you're a Bema fan, you've heard probably some of that teaching, or maybe it was Bible Project. I don't know. These, these, there's some really great stuff coming out. If you're not looking at that stuff, please do. But, you know, the gospel proclamation is a motif that the, the Bible writers, the gospel writers, borrowed from their culture. That it was, the, it was the, the practice of the Roman government and maybe the Greek government before that to when a new king ruled, there would be this proclamation, this good news, this gospel presented to the people. There's a new king in town. There's a new sheriff in town, we might say. And so they borrowed that motif to communicate to the people that there is a brand new king. There is a brand new king. And unlike... The phrase, there's a new sheriff in town, which is a little bit daunting. (laughs) There's a new king in town comes with so much. Jesus, the Messiah, especially for the Jew, who had been raised on the stories and the arc of God's story in the world. Raised from the dead. 
The next phrase, dead, the word dead is plural here. So it's not just that Jesus was raised from the dead and is now alive, but it's that Jesus was dead among the many dead and resurrected to life, suggesting implications for the many dead and the raising of the many dead. Elsewhere, and I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about Jesus being the first fruits among many who will be harvested for righteousness at the end of time. And descended from David. Perhaps not that relevant to us Americans, 21st century, but to the Jew this was huge, and it should be to us as well. Descended from David means it, it confirms the kingly lineage that, uh, of Jesus. The Jews expected the Messiah to come from David, the king's line, and he did. Jesus fulfills an Old Testament prophecy, also part of this descended from David. David was promised, Israel was promised that a king would come. David's throne, there would always be a king on David's throne. And if we think about, as we're learning this, again, overarching story of what God is doing in the world, it's not just about, we don't know what happened before this first century, it's just from Jesus moving forward. No, there's a whole story behind that. There's a whole premise behind that. Jesus is the fulfillment, the climax of the story. But before that, there is the struggle there is the why, there is the how did we get here in the first place, and there is the how, how, how we've done it wrong. And so we're waiting for this Messiah to come, and he comes, descended from David, pulls into all that. And finally, this phrase stresses Jesus' humanity. This is not a king who rules from afar. This is not a God who we just have an altar for and we, we hope we can connect. No, this is a Jesus, this is a God who lived among us, who knows our weaknesses, who knows our struggles because he lived them, who knows how to, make a, how to help us get through it because he was made like us in every way. I hope that's a gospel you're excited about. Amen. I would much, much rather share my faith about that than about a lot of things. Amen. Paul finally says, this is my gospel. What a beautiful, inspiring story. There's nothing here about getting saved. There's nothing here about winning the world for Jesus. There's nothing here about being socially active and doing good things. Those are all important, absolutely. That is the reflection of what we do when we first understand the gospel. And that's my point. We've got to get the gospel on straight. If you, like me, have wandered off the truth of the gospel and your passion in the kingdom is for something that's not the gospel, let me ask you to first get centered on the gospel. Understand what Jesus is asking us to do. Understand that what Jesus is asking you to do may not be what he's asking me to do that we all have our place and we have to have our relationship with the king before he can tell us what he wants to do with this. Let's close out in Romans chapter 1. I love this passage. Paul says in verse 16, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it, the news that Jesus is king and his kingdom has come, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, and the righteous will live by faith. You know, the gospel is the power of God for our salvation. And the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, both in his saving function, but in his judging function, his accountability of the world, how he will reconcile everything in the last day. The gospel is an incredible story. The gospel is an incredible message that it is so easy to lose track of when we get busy doing church. Let me urge you guys, if you're not familiar with the gospel, if you need to go back and look at the gospel, if you need to spend some time figuring out what it means to align yourself, to pledge your allegiance to King Jesus, that you take the time to do that as you continue in your Christian walk. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.